Okay, I promise you some stories on psychic powers. My personal experience in seeing these powers displayed was primarily in reading the mind. My teacher, I thought, could read my mind. I was very convinced of that. And there, some of the instances could have been explained in other ways, but there are a few that I found hard to explain any other way. Um, the most dramatic <coughs> was after I'd been with him for about two years. And as I said, if you live with someone who you think they can read your mind, you have to be very careful about what you let go through your mind, especially when he's your teacher. And so I've been very good. Every time a thought of you know, sexual lust came up in my mind, I said, no, this can't go there, I can't go there. And I was able to do that for about two years. And then finally one night I couldn't stop. I kept thinking about sexual thoughts and in between the sexual thoughts I kept thinking, he's going to know this, he's going to know this, how can I face him tomorrow? <laughs> And then I'd go back to some more. It was back and forth like this. It was a very long meditation. I, um, if I could stay with my breath that long, I would have been impressed. <laughs> At any rate, the next morning I had to face him. My job in the morning after the meal was to wait until he had had his tea. He would sit on his front porch and have a little tea and then go into his room and then I'd go up and I'd clean up on the porch, boil some more water for tea later and all. <clears throat> And in the morning, if I had something I wanted to talk to him about, I would go up while he was drinking his tea. And if not, I would just wait until he'd gone into his room on his own. So I decided this would be a good morning to wait until he'd gone into his room. Well, he had one cup of tea. And then he had a second cup of tea. And then he pulled out something to read and had a third cup of tea. And so I figured there was no going into his room. I had to face him. And so I, I reminded myself he wasn't going to kill me at least, so I could go up. So, so I went up and pretended that he wasn't there, and I started mopping around on the floor. And he looked at me and he said, you know, that kind of meditation is a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought about that afterwards, and it was probably the best thing he could say. No guilt trips, nothing, but you know, he knew, but waste of time. Um, Another story dealing with reading minds. This one I didn't see myself, but the story goes that when a John Lee first went down to Bangkok to teach, <clears throat> there had been a, the abbot of one of the monasteries in Bangkok was in charge of the northeast, which was the area where most of the, um, the forest tradition was. And his predecessor had been very favorably inclined to the northeast, been very favorably inclined to the forest tradition. This monk, however, was not favorably inclined at all. He did, just didn't like the idea. This was Sumdet Mahavirvang and Maparong. And he happened to be sick one time, and so John Lee went to visit him. And as he was sitting there, lying there sick, John Lee would come and sit and meditate. And after all, the man began to feel there was a power coming out of a John Lee. It was, it was getting better and better and better. And so he asked John Lee, he said, what are you doing? He says, I think he says, I'm offering some quiet. <laughs> and he says, well, whatever you're doing, keep on doing it, okay? It feels good. And so he helped the nurse the guy back to health and then actually got him to start meditating. And he realized after all these years of having been against the forest tradition that he, was, he had barely really been in the wrong, that they actually, the monks were actually doing something. Because in Bangkok at that time, the, the official line was that jhana and nirvana are no longer available. Um, they had actually done a survey under the king of Rama IV, Rama V, excuse me, 
going around to all the meditation monasteries they knew of in the Bangkok area, and came to the conclusion that nobody was attaining jhana, and of course nobody had attained nirvana at all. And so the, the official line was that these things were past their time. You couldn't do this anymore. And so this is why this particular monk was against the forest tradition. He thought it was teaching people to be deluded, to think they actually could attain jhana, could attain strong concentration. And then when he himself started having these states, and he realized he'd been in the wrong. So he asked John Lee to, can, to stay on there at the monastery and start teaching lay people and monks. Well, many of the monks in the monastery were still very jealous of John Lee's attention he was getting from the abbot. And, were obvious, and them, they themselves were of the opinion that John Lee was teaching people to be deluded. And so John Lee came up with a technique or a tactic. There was an old woman whose job in the monastery was to clean the bathrooms. And he got her to sit and meditate. And she got so she could read people's minds. And the first mind she read were the minds of the monks. And so she went and reported to the abbot. She said, do you know this monk over here? He's plotting to take over your position. And that monk over there, you know he's doing it. <laughs> he knew all the dirt on all the monks. you know. <laughs> and so the abbot called the monks together and he said, this is what they're saying about you. And the monks were going, <laughs> And he said, be careful what you think, okay? These people know you inside and out. So that's a case where the ability to read minds is a useful ability. You can use it. <laughs> um, other psychic stories. My absolute favorite story of psychic powers, though, concerning a John Lee. Um, when he was... He established a monastery outside of Bangkok and was becoming famous. And a lot of military men would come to see him. So, um, there's a strange connection between the Thai forest tradition and the military. It's kind of a macho kind of connection. And so these men would come out, and John Lee would talk about his experiences in the forest. And a group of them said one time, well, next time you go out in the forest, can we go along as well? He said, you guys, you know, you're, you're old, you're in your 50s and 60s, you've got pot bellies, you're just not the, you know, the soldiers you used to be. He said, oh, come on, we've got, we've got soldiers' hearts. We can take anything. So he agreed that the next time he was going to go into the forest, that they could go for the first night. He'd spend the first night there, and then he would go deeper into the forest, and they'd come back out. <clears throat> well, on the first day in, sure enough, as they were walking, got, got into the afternoon, and it was getting hot and buggy, and they were sweaty and tired and miserable. And they started complaining. And John Lee was the sort of person that when he went in the forest, he just went. If you couldn't keep up with him, that was your problem. And so he just kept walking, walking, walking. The guys were struggling to keep up. Finally, he said, OK, I know you're tired. Over the next ridge, there is a, a banana grove. And when we reach the banana grove, we'll stop and have some bananas. Well, the men couldn't. He, he couldn't because it was in the afternoon. So they reached the ridge, and there was the banana grove, as he had promised. And so they cut down some of the bananas and were eating them. And as they were getting ready to leave, he said, no, you can't leave a mess here, OK? You see all those banana peels all over the ground? Be very neat. When you're in the forest, you've got to be neat. Take them and put them in a pile. And take the knife that you use to cut the bananas and stick it in the pile. And then tomorrow, on your way out, you pick up the knife and go back home. So they did as they were told. Went in, spent the night in the, in the forest. Now, the next morning after the meal, they started coming out. When they got to that ridge, there was no banana grove. And they look around and around and they found, <laughs> they found the knife in a pile of shit. <laughs> you can imagine what they were thinking. Um, <laughs> 
So the next time, when, he, when John, John Lee got back to the monastery, they came and they just bowed down. <laughs> We're sorry that we caused you trouble on that trip. <laughs> so, so he had a sense of humor. You know? A couple of other stories. My teacher had a student one time who was sitting and meditating with him in Bangkok. And the building where they were staying in Bangkok <coughs> originally had been the residence of another monk who had dealt in uh, Buddha images. His name was Mahakwan. And you know a lot of the beautiful Buddha heads and things, Buddha hands you see around? Many of them came through this guy. People would come at 2, 3 a.m. in the morning offering Buddha image for sale, and no questions were asked you know, where they came from, where you found them. You know, were they originally just hands, or was it a you know, whole Buddha image? Um, and through him, then it got out on the international art market. And he had quite a business going. When my teacher came to teach in Bangkok, he was in the second story of the room of the building that Maha Kwan was on the first story. And there are a lot of stories about how Maha Kwan's tried to get rid of him. <clears throat> and finally, after a couple of years, he did leave on his own. And then shortly after my teacher left, Mahakwan was stabbed to death. He was found stabbed in the shoulder. And whatever money he had kept in his little hut was gone. And a couple years after that, Ajahn Foon returned to that building to teach meditation again. And a lot of the people who would come and meditate, sometimes, sometimes their very first vision in meditation would be of this bloody monk wandering around in the building. And they had never heard of him before. And so he... Um, They'd say, hey, there's this monk with blood all over his, his robe here walking around. And then John Fung would say, well, dedicate the merit of your meditation to him. So they'd sit and they'd meditate for a few minutes. And he wouldn't take it. <laughs> he wouldn't accept it. So he was still wandering around. But that happened enough times that it, it sort of raised your suspicions and maybe really, really was something going on there. Um, but the most dramatic story regarding one of his students and her visions was the building where he was teaching was looking over an area that they called envelopes, or song in Thai, which is where they would keep coffins. I don't know if you know the Thai tradition that you don't go right ahead and cremate a body right after the death, but you wait until everybody in the family is ready, which sometimes can take a couple months. In fact, sometimes bodies get left there and they get forgotten. And then they'll have a sort of an inventory and they'll send out word, you know, do you still want to cremate your, you know, your father, your uncle, whatever? And if there's no response, the monastery will just put them all in the crematorium and be done with them. But what you had there was a whole series of lines of these things, or it's basically a um, build out of concrete blocks or bricks just big enough to stick a coffin in and then seal it up with plaster. <clears throat> I had a friend who was a monk who lived at the monastery. He used, liked to, used to do walking meditation down these rows. And there was one night when he was thinking to himself, hey, I'm getting pretty good now. I'm not afraid of ghosts or anything with all these dead people lying around. Five minutes later, this hand comes out and grabs <laughs> the ankle. It turns out it was an empty one of these things, and there was a drug addict <laughs> lying down. <laughs> and he saw this somebody walking past. He says, hey, do you have a light? <laughs> but in this particular case, one of the John Ford's students, a woman, was sitting and meditating. And she had this vision that a coffin was being placed in the, in the song, in the envelope. And there was a little ceremony that went along with it. And then after the ceremony was done, Everybody dispersed, and yet there was this one man who was standing right at the entrance to the, to the envelope. And he looked left, and he looked right, and he went Shh! into the envelope. And that startled her, and she left meditation, and she looked down out the window, and sure enough, people were departing from a little ceremony like that. 
So without saying anything to my teacher, she went down and asked one of the people, she said, that person who died, did he look like this? And she described the man in the suit. And they said, yeah, that's the guy. So she went up to see my teacher. And he said, okay, get back into meditation and see if you can get that vision again. And she did. And he said, okay, now look inside the envelope. And so she looked inside, and it was like she could see him crouched next to his body, kind of looking at his body, and not really not, kind of looking kind of lost, not knowing where to go, where to, what to go, where to do, where to go, what to do. And so then my teacher said, okay, now spread the merit of your meditation to him. And she said it was like going down a, a dark road at night. It was like this light came out from her. And you know, sometimes you go down the dark road and you, there's a deer in your headlights and the deer will turn around and look at you and you see this kind of glow in its eyes for a second and then it's gone. That was precisely what happened there. The man kind of looked at her and there was this kind of look of recognition in his eyes and then he was gone. So, so that kind of thing is possible in meditation. So if you happen to see that kind of thing, this is what you do. <laughs> I had a, he had another student who um, actually would see people at an accident and there'd be the dead bodies lying there, and then there'd be the people themselves kind of wandering around, looking kind of lost. And that became one of her regular habits. She just spread lots of the merit of her meditation to these people as she, went, as she drove past. So, so if you ever run into a circumstances like that, that's what you do. Any questions on psychic powers? <laughs> <laughs> The one about Ajahn Lee? I think it, well, one is my prejudice against the Thai military. <laughs> um, two, I think Ajahn Lee had a really neat sense of humor. <laughs> and he, and it, it taught, him, taught them a very good lesson. You know? What were they attached to? You know? What is food? Is it all that different from excrement? I mean, it's, no. <laughs> so. Right, yeah, the feeding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Anything else? Okay. I also like that story about teaching the old woman how to medit- how to read people's minds. Yes. <laughs> My teacher had another student who was she was quite amazing. She had a she had started meditating when she was 70. <clears throat> and um, she had come with a lot of pain. In fact, she, she was convinced that she was a victim of voodoo and that she needed to meditate in order to overcome the power, whatever it was. It turned out later she discovered that she had cancer, cancer of the liver, but she was using the meditation to work with the pain. And she tended to have some very interesting um, visions in her meditation. She was a very tough kind of character herself. Her husband had died when she was young, left her with a couple of kids. <clears throat> and she had opened a, a movie theater in, in Rodbury. And Rodbury is an area to the west of Bangkok, and it's one of the areas where the mafia is pretty strong in Thailand. And she'd opened up the theater, and within a few days after the theater was opened, the local mafia guy came with his henchmen and sat down in the middle of the theater, and everybody in the theater got up and ran away. And so she went down, and she sat down right next to the guy. And without even looking at him, she was looking up at the movie screen. She said, you know, this is a place where people come to relax and forget the cares of the day. Now, if you've come to relax and forget the cares of the day, you're welcome. If not, it would be better that you not come. And after a few minutes, he got up and went away. Never, let, never bothered her again. 
So I said, she was, you know, she was tough, tough woman. At any rate, she started meditating and she started having interesting visions in her meditation. One was um, she could start seeing where members of her family were and what they were doing. So one day she decided to check up on her daughter who had come here to America to study. And it was the middle of the day and she checked up on her daughter and she saw her daughter asleep. So in the vision she yelled at her and she said, what are you doing sleeping? It's the middle of the day. I sent you over there to study. And in the vision, the daughter said, but mom, it's nighttime over here. <laughs> he said, I never heard of any such thing. What is this? <laughs> and then she found out the truth after she left meditation. <clears throat> Another time she told me was when a huge um, hurricane was coming up to the Gulf of Siam. And it was going to come right into where they were at Wasukaram, which is right on the, right the shoreline where the, the, the Jiao Pia River comes down into the Gulf of Siam. And she was in this tiny little shack under a Don Sama, which is one of these huge trees that has very shallow roots. And when a storm comes through, it's the first thing to go. And she was sitting, here I am in this little tiny shack with this big tree over me. I'm really in a dangerous situation. So she told me, she said, well, I have to figure out what, tried to figure out, you know, what is, what causes storms? You know, why do, why do storms happen? So she got in her meditation and she saw that it was this big updraft coming in the middle of the storm, sort of the eye of the hurricane that was causing the storm. She said, well, what if I cut those, the, the updraft? And so she sat there meditating, cut, 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 the storm disappeared. So, <laughs> so those, those are powers that are not mentioned in here. But <laughs> <laughs> they tell the story of a John Fun, who was another student, a student of a John Munns. And he was riding in a bus, and it was the first time buses had come into northern Thailand, northeastern Thailand. And so he sat there figuring, you know, what causes this bus to run? So he sort of looked at it in his meditation, and he saw that there's this spark plug. What happens if you stop the spark plug? And so he thought, stop, and the bus stopped. And so the, the driver went out and checked the engine, didn't see anything wrong, got in, started it up again, it was running okay. And John Fun said, well, was that a coincidence or what? Let's try it again. So he said, stop, stopped. The bus stopped. And so the driver got out to check it again, and Jonathan said, don't, 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 you don't have to check it. I know what's wrong. It's okay. <laughs> and then it started up, and it was gone. <laughs> so. so if you ever find that you have those powers of meditation, let me know. <laughs> I'll tell you other stories. Let's get back to business. Okay. Passage 7 basically explains the terms uh, fabrications of exertion, which, as I told you, are basically the definition of right effort. There's really no need that we, for us to go over that one again. The next interesting passage is passage 8. And when you talk about the role of desire in meditation, many people will have had experience that desire was a problem, I mean, it gets in your way. So the question is, how do you make use of desire so it doesn't get in your way? And here's some of the Buddha's re recommendations. These four bases of power, when developed and pursued, are of great fruit and great benefit. And how are the four bases of power developed and pursued so as to be of great fruit and great benefit? There's a case where a monk develops the base of power endowed with concentration founded on desire and the fabrications of exertion. Thinking, okay, this desire of mine will be no, neither overly sluggish nor overly active, neither inwardly restricted nor out, outwardly scattered. 
he keeps perceiving what is in front and behind so that what is in front is the same as what is behind. What is behind is the same as what is in front. What is below is the same as what is above. What is above is the same as what is below. Night is the same as day. Day is the same as night. By means of an awareness thus open and unhampered, he develops a brightened mind. Okay, now there's several things in there that we can go over, but the explanations are further down. Okay, how is desire overly sluggish? Skip down to the one, two, three, fourth paragraph. How is desire overly sluggish? Whatever desire is accompanied by laziness conjoined with laziness, that is called overly sluggish desire. And how is desire overly active? Whatever desire is accompanied by restlessness conjoined with restlessness, that is overly active desire. Okay, what you're looking for here is a balance in your desire. And if the element of desire, you just can't stir yourself up to even want to do the meditation, okay, then your desire is too sluggish, the concentration will not be developed. If you're restless in the sense that you want the results to come too fast, that gets in your way as well. The trick I found here is to focus, instead of focusing on the goal, focusing on what you're doing to get there. You might make an analogy. Suppose you're in New Jersey and you want to go to New York. Now you see the skyline of New York on the horizon. If you drive just looking at the skyline, what's going to happen? You drive off the road or drive into somebody. Somebody drives into you. What you've got to do is, okay, you know that this is the road that goes to New York. You focus on the road. And however long it's going to take you to get there, that's okay, because you know you're on the right road. Occasionally you may check to make sure that New York City is not in your rearview mirror. Or if it is, and you check, you make sure you're not on, a, on an interchange. But um, otherwise, you keep your attention focused on the road. Okay, this breath, this breath, this breath. Now, you're not denying your desire. You're not pretending you don't have the desire. But you just focus your desire on, on the steps rather than on the goal. And that way, your, your desire does not become restless. If you deny the desire, okay, then you're starting to lie to yourself again, which is dangerous for meditators. When the, when you have to admit to yourself, I am here because I have the desire to get the mind calm. Many times you hear that you know, the desire for awakening is the only thing that keeps, stands between you and awakening. That's true only at the very end of the path. You know. That's the last thing you drop. Otherwise, every kid on the street out there <laughs> would be awakened. They don't have the desire. You know. So, so you, have to, you have to learn how to use your desire. <laughs> use your desire wisely. Okay. So when you don't feel like meditating, you have to learn how to talk yourself into wanting to meditate. That's so you're not lazy. This is where the, the ability to give yourself pep talks is an important part of the meditation. When you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling down, you're feeling lazy. There are various ways you can talk yourself into wanting to meditate. One is to remind yourself it doesn't get easier as you grow, old, grow older. If you don't do it now, it's going to get harder the next time around. Another way is to remind yourself that you could die at any time. There's a whole series of um, contemplations. One of my favorite ones is where the Buddha recommends, you know, at, at every evening at sunset, when you're looking at the beautiful sunset, don't think about how beautiful the sunset is. Remind yourself, you could die tonight. And ask yourself, are you ready to go? If you're not ready to go, okay, what do you need to do? You've got to work on your mind. So it gives you some encouragement to work on the mind. 
Every morning at sunrise, you think the same thing. This might be the last day. Am I ready to go? If not, I've got more work to do. And again, the recollection of death here is not to get you morbid or depressed. It's simply to get you out of your laziness. There's also a good passage in the canon where the Buddha talks about dealing with laziness. First, he talks about the eight causes of laziness. And I'll just give you a sample. Um, I can't remember all eight. Things like, I'm hungry. I should rest. I've just had my meal. I'm too full. I should rest. I'm about to go on a journey, so I should rest. I've just come back from a journey, so I should rest. I'm sick. I should rest. I've just recovered from illness. I should rest. So on down the line. And then there are the basis for being, for being energetic. First one is, I haven't eaten today. <laughs> I'm not, I don't have to digest my food. I've got, you know, I've got an empty stomach. I've got plenty of energy to meditate. Um, I'm about to go on a journey. While I'm on a journey, I wouldn't have the strength to meditate, so I should meditate now. I've just come back from a journey. I didn't have the chance to meditate then, but I do have the chance to meditate now. It's basically, it's the same circumstances. It's your attitude. Um, my favorite one is, okay, you know, I've just recovered from an illness. I'm, I might have a relapse, so I should meditate now. <laughs> so a lot of it's your attitude. And so learning how to remind yourself of reasons to meditate, either, either the, what we call the negative reasons, that if you don't meditate now, it's going to get worse as you go on, or the positive reasons of why you want to meditate. Remind yourself of the good times you've had meditating in the past. Um, the sense of pleasure, the sense of ease and relaxation, or calm that comes from the meditation. So to stir up your desire to meditate some more. Yes? The eight grounds for laziness? <laughs> yes, it is. It's in the Anguttara, uh, in the eights. It's in the Anguttara Nikaya, in a section called the eights. You know, they have the ones, the twos, the threes, fours, five, six, sevens, and eights. Yeah. It's in volume three of Handful of Leaves. Which I may say is an excellent anthology if you <laughs> if you're looking for a, a gift horse. Okay, the other things you have to watch out for are sloth and drowsiness and desire stirred up by the five strands of sensuality. Okay, this is and how is desire inwardly restricted? Whatever desire is accompanied by sloth and drowsiness, conjoined with sloth and drowsiness, that's called inwardly restricted desire. And how is desire outwardly scattered? Whatever desire stirred up by the five strands of sensuality, outwardly dispersed and dissipated, that is called outwardly scattered desire. Now you notice in, in these four lists of unbalanced desire, you've got three of the hindrances. You've got restlessness, sloth and drowsiness, and then there's desire for the five strands of sensuality, which can also include, often include ill will. You don't get what you want, you know, thoughts of revenge, thoughts of vengeance come up. So basically, these are ways of dealing with the hindrances by looking at just the level of your desire, the desire for the meditation. Okay. 
techniques for dealing with sloth and drowsiness. The first one is change your object of meditation. If, for instance, you're, you're focusing on the breath, you can change the breath to something else. Deeper, heavier, in a way to wake yourself up. Or you can actually focus on another topic of meditation. Again, you can focus on death, you can focus on... Um... In the Pali, they recommend that if you've memorized any passages of Dharma, you start repeating those in your mind. And if you haven't memorized Dharma, back when I was a brand new monk and I hadn't memorized much, there was one piece I could remember from my days in high school that I had memorized, which was the Jabberwocky. And it's very useful for, <laughs> for waking yourself up. <laughs> You can rub your limbs, you can, as they, they recommend, pulling your earlobes, getting up and walking around. Um, Ajahn Chah has one who do walking meditation backwards, and that wakes you up. There's one technique where they talk about um, go sitting on a cliff face. <laughs> and I tried that once when I was drowsy, and I almost killed myself <laughs> <laughs> because I was really drowsy, and that, that's not a good way to test yourself. Um, backwards walking meditation is a lot safer. <clears throat> okay, desire stirred up by the five strands of sensuality. One of the traditional ways of dealing with this is to look at the unattractive side of what you're lusting after, what you're desiring. And a lot of people complain about that. I'm, I'm, we, we have this chant down at the monastery, 32 parts of the body, and that's the one chant that we get most of our negative reviews on. People say, why are you chanting this? It's so aversive, it's so down in the body. And you have to realize it's there to balance out your normal attraction, first to your own body, then to the bodies of other people. And it's not, it's not bad-mouthing the body. It's simply looking at the side of the body that we don't normally look at. Say, that's there too. And when you remind yourself of that, then it's, it's a lot harder to get carried away with lust, a lot harder to get carried away with desire. But notice that you focus at first on your own body. There's, there's an interesting passage where the Buddha says that your attraction to other people starts out with attraction to your own body. And the, and, the, and the most direct way of dealing with that is to analyze your own body into its pieces. Now, some people may complain that this is, gives a negative body image, but it's, it's a healthy negative body image as opposed to an unhealthy one. Unhealthy is when you see everybody else has a beautiful body except for your ugly body. Healthy one is realizing everybody's got these things. We're all equal in this way. Britney Spears, her liver is no better looking than yours. <laughs> Any other questions on dealing with these unbalanced levels of desire? Okay, next. And how do you dwell perceiving what is in front and behind? So does what is in front is the same as what is behind? This passage doesn't really explain it very well. My way of dealing with that one is, have you ever noticed when you close your eyes, you still think that you're looking forward? And which part of your brain is looking forward? It's an imprint from your eyes. 
And if you, if you just forget that your eyes are looking in that direction, say, the brain is not looking forward or backward. Remind yourself of that. One way, and if you, if that, you have trouble with that one, actively tell yourself, okay, look backwards. Imagine that you had eyes in the back of your head. So there is no sense of your front being more important or more interesting than back. That helps kind of dewire your brain from, from, the, from the influence of your senses. And for them, how does a monk dwell so that what is below is the same as what is above and vice versa? He says, well, it's where you reflect on your very body and goes through all the 32 parts of the body. And a lot of this ha- has to do with the Asian notion that the, you know, the head is higher, well, not only physically higher than the feet, but is also more pure, cleaner, better part of the body than the feet are. But when you look at your head and look at your feet, they've got the same things inside them. They've got muscles, they've got blood, they've got all these other things inside. So your head is no purer than your feet. And again, when you, when you learn how to think in this way, it helps to erase some of the impact that the body has on the brain or that body has on your perception of things. So when you close your eyes, you are more independent of the body. The brain doesn't, your mind doesn't feel as aligned with the body or as influenced by the body as it normally might feel. And this helps to strengthen your concentration. Okay, how do you dwell by day, by night as by day, and by day as by night? Okay. It's a case where you develop your base of power founded on desire, etc. By the same means that you would use by day, those are the means you use by night. In other words, you try to you look at your, the mind's attitude towards daytime and nighttime and try to erase the difference. So that if you're awake at night, stay awake. Don't tell yourself, well, night, now it's nighttime, now's the time I've got to sleep. Notice that perception, forget about it. So that your attitude, your attitude is less influenced by night. Which you see what the pattern here is basically he's getting your mind less and less influenced by the you know, sort of the world world around you and by the way your body is configured. Your presuppositions that are based on the fact that your eyes point that way. Or when it's dark, you're used to sleeping, when it's light, you're used to staying awake. And you begin to realize that you can make your mind more and more independent of these things, both in terms of space, your sort of um, orientation in space and your orientation in time. And then finally, how do you, by means of an awareness open and enhanced, develop a brightened mind? There's a case where you have the perception of light, the perception of daytime at any hour of the day, well in hand, well established. Some people can call up an inner light in their meditation. And sometimes it's a spot, and sometimes it's this whole sort of field of awareness. And the practice here is to be able to call that up at any time. This is one way of overcoming drowsiness. If it's dark outside, it can be bright inside. So the process is here. One, take your desire and learn how to balance it so it's not scattered, it's not sluggish, it's not 
what's, what's what the words he uses? Overly sluggish, overly active, restricted or scattered. And then try to keep your focus of mind, the attitude of your mind, more and more independent of sensory input. That okay, you don't have you don't live with the association that well now that it's dark I've got to go to sleep. If you're awake enough to meditate, meditate. And if you are getting sleepy, if if you have this sensation of light. Now, not everybody has the sensation of light in their meditation. This is a large misunderstanding you run into sometimes, that you, if you don't have the light, then you can't get jhana. Well, it's not the case. The Buddha never describes jhana as involving light. He says, you focus on your object, you direct your thought, and you evaluate the object, and then you settle into the object so that there's a sense of pleasure and rapture. There's no necessary description of light in there. Some people have it, some people don't. If you have it, it's interesting that in the Vimuti Maga, which was a sort of a commentarial treatise that was written before the Visuti Maga, which you've probably heard of. In the Vimuti Maga, they say, if any image comes up in your meditation while you're focusing on the breath, don't pay attention to it, leave it alone. And then a couple centuries later, the Visuti Maga comes along and says, if the image comes up, drop the breath and go to the image. Um, the problem is if you that's in a, in a description of the 16 stages of breath meditation. This gets you up, I think, to stage four. And then they drop the remaining stages and just go with the image. The Buddha himself never describes focusing on the light that way. So if you're not getting the light, that doesn't mean you can't meditate. It's just that different people have it and different people don't. It's optional. Any questions on the material we just covered? Yes. to work during the day? Yeah. Well, the question is that overcoming the, your attachment to day and night is all fine and good for monks. <laughs> but for lay people who have you know, jobs during the day and specific appointments, how appropriate is this? Um, I found many times that when you're meditating and you you find times when you don't sleep because the meditation has been so relaxing and so calming that you don't need to sleep. And yet part of the back of your mind says, look, I've got to get my eight hours before I, go to, before I work tomorrow. And it's learning how not to listen to that. Okay, if you're calm, if you're centered, even if you're awake, you can, you're still getting nourishment. In fact, many times it's better nourishment than sleep. So it's good to keep that in mind. It's become so common throughout the Theravadan world. Because if you look at I mean, the, 30, the, the list in the canon is missing the brain. You know? Bone marrow. Bone marrow? Yeah, that's, that's the explanation I heard. They thought the brain was the one thing in the bone marrow. Hmm. I don't know. My, my thought was that they, the 32 parts, I mean, you have more than 32 parts in your body, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, 
that these were the parts that were associated with disease. So, and so you reflect on the fact that you have 32 disease causers. <laughs> You're walking around inside the skin, and the skin itself is a disease cause. Some people call the light a nimitta, and there are different kinds. Sometimes it comes as a kind of a ball or a little, little spot of light. And sometimes you actually get it inside your body and it feels like a lump. Um, and sometimes it's just this brightness in your whole field of vision. And I think what they're talking about here is that brightness in the field of your vision. But when you were talking about saying, in the genre, some people would get that, some people would not. Yeah. And some people, and there, there tends to be especially in the fourth jhana, it's, it's, you can call it a brightness, even though it's not a light. There's a sense of your awareness is really, really clear. And really, and that not, doesn't necessarily have a very bright light associated with it, but there, there is a sense of clarity of awareness, which can get pretty intense, which can also be described as, a, as kind of a brightness. Passage number nine. Heard that on one occasion Venerable Ananda was staying in Gosambi, in Gosidas Park. Then the Brahman Unapa went to Venerable Ananda and on arrival greeted him courteously. After an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, he sat down on one side. Sat down to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to Venerable Ananda, what is the aim of this holy life lived under the contemplative Gautama? And Ananda said, the holy life is lived under the Blessed One with the aim of abandoning desire. Unapasa, is there a path, is there a place, practice for the abandoning of that desire? And Ananda says, yes, there is. Okay, what is it? And then Ananda gives, there's a case where a monk develops the base of power to endow with concentration, founded on desire and the fabrication of exertion. And then he goes through the remaining four bases of power. And then Unapa says, well, if that's so, then it's an endless path, not one with an end. For it's impossible that one could abandon desire by means of desire. Hmm. Probably heard that one often before. So Ananda says, well then, Brahma, let me ask you a question on this matter. Answer as you see fit. Didn't you first have the desire thinking, I'll go to the park? And then when you reached the park, wasn't that particular desire allayed? Unapa says, yes. And then he goes through the remaining basis of desire. And then in the last paragraph, he says, so it is with an Aran whose mental effluence are ended, who has reached fulfillment, done the task, laid down the burden, attained the true goal, totally destroyed the fetter of becoming, and who was released through right gnosis. Whatever desire he first had for the attainment of Arahantship, on attaining Arahantship, that particular desire is allayed. So in other words, you use the desire as, you know, as the raft across the stream. When you reach the other side, then you let it go. And the same with the remaining four bases of power. And so at the very end, he says, so what do you think? Is this an endless path or one with an end? And Unapa says, you're right, sir. This is a path with an end and not an endless one. 
So you make use of the desire to get you to a point where desire ends. This is a common pattern throughout the, the early teachings. I mean, you use concentration, but once you get to the get to awakening, you drop the concentration. Now it's there afterwards for you to use as you see fit, but you don't need it anymore for the purpose of awakening. And in the awakening itself, there is no concentration. It's a different state of mind entirely. Yes. Dunha, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you said this one was a different one, Chanda. Right, Chanda, yes. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of, okay, well, it's our desire, but it's not that it's all one desire, it's just that each, each type of desire has its uses and its misuse, let's put it that way. And this is part of the skill of the practice. This is why the Buddha emphasized more than anything else this distinction between skillful and unskillful. Because you've come up with the idea, well, desire is bad, period. You tie yourself up in knots. Yeah, <laughs> you do. Attachment is bad. You tie yourself up in knots. Am I attached to my path? I better let go of my path. And what happens? You jump off the raft in the middle of the river. <laughs> so whatever comes up, ask yourself, is there a skillful use or is there you know, is an unskillful use of this thing? And have a sense of how to distinguish between the two. Well, again, it depends on how you use that craving. There's actually a passage in the canon. We were talking about it earlier. It's an interesting story. There was a nun who really had it for for Ananda, really liked him. And so she was trying to figure out some way to attract him. So she sends out word to him that she's sick and she would like to have him to come and visit. So he comes. And she sees him coming. She lies down on the bed and she covers up her head. And he comes in. And what she, I guess, was hoping that he would give her a little Dharma teaching and that he asked, how are you feeling? Are you feeling better? Yes, I'm feeling better. Isn't that nice? And you know, things would sort of carry on from there. Um, so he comes in <clears throat> and he says, okay, this body is based, on, is based on food. And it's through the proper use of food that you overcome your attachment to food. This body is based on conceit. And it's through the proper use of conceit that you overcome conceit. This, prop, this body is based on craving. It's through the proper use of craving that you overcome craving. This body is based on sexual intercourse, and sexual intercourse, the Buddha said, he just cuts the bridge. <laughs> but the last one, he said, as for sexual intercourse, the Buddha says to cut the bridge. <laughs> you, know, you can see where she thought it was going. You know? <laughs> And so he explains himself. He says, this body is based on food. He says, when you eat, you reflect on your food, where it comes from, why you're using it, where it's going. And with the proper reflection, the proper use of food, then that helps you overcome your attachment to food. For conceit, he says, you can think, okay, these other people, they're human beings, they've attained awakening, why can't I attain awakening? You're comparing yourself with them, and that becomes your motivation for for working for its awakening. So it's a skillful use of conceit. Craving, I want to be awakened. Okay, again, you use that to start actually practicing on the path to awakening. It's a skillful use of craving. Then once you've, once you've reached the end, then you can drop it. 
But unlike the Vajrayana people, he said, no sexual intercourse. <laughs> you cannot make that a path in any way, shape, or form. No. Yes? on the context where it should be contained. I mean, if it's actually getting so that you're, you're getting careless in your practice, then you've got to contain it. But if it's giving you the impetus to keep going, you want to keep that, keep that going. I might be speaking out of place, but like, if you don't see a monster when I'm being with, it seems to be acceptable. And I mm-hmm. mean, you know, you're very contained in the way you relax and relax. They say that um, the question is, you know, why don't monks kind of let themselves go? Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a phrase that the practice of jhana is the sport for monks and nuns. <laughs> so that's where you can let yourself go. <laughs> the question was, you know, she wondered about the containment of passion and whether it was always a good thing, whether it might be good to let go every now and then. And, and why is it that monks and nuns seem to be so restrained? And, and basically, it's, ex- it's an external kind of restraint, but there can be a passion for the meditation. My teacher once said, you've got to be crazy about the meditation if you want to do it well. And that means, okay, now I can, you know, I can focus my breath here. Can I focus it there? Can I focus it there? Can I put it in the back of my neck? Can I put it at the base of my spine? Just play with it, you know, whatever's, whatever's happening. And it's fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes? Not necessarily. You can have some pretty bad intentions. You can have some pretty unskillful intentions. Desire is basically, you know, did you want something? And then intention is based on, okay, what you're going to do to get there. And, and it can be skill. Either either one can be skillful or unskillful. Intention is your motivation to act, or your your intention, your choice of action, basically. So the two play off each other. If there's a desire for something, okay, then you choose a method that you're going to follow in order to get there. And then, of course, when there are many different desires, you choose which desire you're going to work on. You're going to you're going to act on. 
They're very intimately interconnected.